0: With us this morning is Nathan Greaser, who is here along with uh, his wife, Kate, and their daughter, Ivy, seated right here on, the right, on your left. Uh, thank you. Yeah. With them also is Lenore Kaufman, who is a charter member intern of the Shalom Project, right? You're the one of the first one. You're the one of the first groups. So you're a charter member. So uh, Nathan will be sharing a bit about that in Sunday School, as you heard. So Nathan uh, and Kate have recently been uh, worshiping with... Sunnyside Mennonite Church, Nathan as youth pastor for six years approximately. And so we're very glad to have him here to continue this two-part series. And now you are director of the Shalom Project, which we'll hear much more about this morning as we go on. Shall we pray? Thanks, Lord, for this chance to have Nathan here and share among us and move us along in our hope and vision for this congregation to be engaged with the city. May you bless him with freedom as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks,
1: It's nice to be here with you all. I like to bring you greetings from my home congregation, which is a little bit ambiguous right now. Kate and I will uh, be back at Sunnyside in a couple of months, but we're in kind of a three-month break right now, so I'll bring you greetings from the Shalom Project. <laughs> it's good to be with you, and I uh, look forward to talking more with you about how we might join together in partnership uh, between East Chestnut Street and the Shalom Project. But first, let's talk about subversive Shalom. This is Ursula Nordstrom. Ursula was a uh, well-known children's book uh, publisher and editor. She is credited for moving the genre of children's literature from being primarily about adult-approved morality, right? so teaching kids kind of the do's and don'ts of, of how to be a person, uh, to, to being more about in, uh, igniting children's imagination and inspiring their emotion and creativity. So, this was a big shift in children's literature that Ursula worked at. Her vision, as she said, was to publish good books for bad children. <laughs> you might not have heard of Ursula Nordstrom, but you've probably heard of Shel Silverstein. Ursula worked with Shel Silverstein on the book Where the Sidewalk Ends, which is one of his most famous uh, collections of poetry for children. And in that book uh, is this poem Listen to the Mussons. Shel Silverstein writes Listen to the Mussons, child. Listen to the don'ts, listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child, anything can be. I share about Ursula Nordstrom and Shel Silverstein because I think that in their work with children's literature, they're both being subversive. Through this genre of children's literature, through the books that little children read, They're encouraging kids to think and dream and imagine beyond what is, beyond the reality as it's defined for them. They're inviting them to use their imagination and creativity and emotion to embrace the unexpected. And they're doing this at a time when it was not the norm for children's literature. See, subversion is all about imagining and pursuing a different reality, and in most cases, uh, not so much in this one, but in most cases it's a reality that that frees people from oppression and violence. This is part of our own Anabaptist story. Uh, I would say that our Anabaptist uh, fathers and mothers were being subversive in their decision as a small minority group to baptize adults at a time when that was not the norm. You know, Anabaptists didn't violently revolt against the catholics or the lutherans they they uh, kind of from the bottom up in this grassroots way began doing what they felt called to and they inspired change they did it from a position of weakness not a position of power so this brings us to our text from jeremiah 29 This is a letter, and I know that you guys have been looking at this uh, for a while now, so maybe I'm repeating some things. But this is a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote uh, from what he was hearing from God to the people uh, of Judah who were in Babylon. And Jeremiah, I believe, calls the people to engage in subversive shalom. So not long before this letter was written, uh, Babylon, who was the superpower of the day, attacked Uh, Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple there, and they took uh, most of the people of Jerusalem away to Babylon with them. Now, this was scandalous for a number of reasons. First, because, remember, these people in Jerusalem are God's chosen people, right? And the land that they're living in was the land that God had given them. This was a gift from God. And the temple that the Babylonians destroyed was the place where God was believed to have been most fully present among God's people. And so now all of that's gone. God's people are scattered, the land that they were living in is occupied, and the temple's destroyed, leaving them maybe to wonder what happened to God. And so it's in this context that Jeremiah... So Jeremiah actually stayed behind in Jerusalem. He wasn't taken to Babylon. But it's in this context that uh, he writes this letter, uh, that chapter 29 is is a part of this, um, to the people calling them on behalf of God, calling them to, to be patient, to stay put, to do good work, to seek shalom. These are radical, subversive instructions from Jeremiah. The calling in this text is to seek the shalom of the city that the exiles find themselves in, Babylon. Now, shalom is about much more than uh, just kind of existing uh, quietly and, and being peaceful. Um, it's really about all of these words. You know, our, our, our um, Bibles usually translate this word peace, and that's a part of it, but it doesn't capture the full kind of the breadth of what the word shalom uh, uh, encapsulates. So it, it's, it's about wholeness and well-being and flourishing and peace and completeness and soundness. It's all these things. So God is calling the exiles not to just kind of exist quietly and, and not cause a ruckus. God's actually calling them to seek the well-being of the very people who got them into this situation that they're in. This calling is subversive because it asks the exiles, the people least expected to pursue shalom, to actually do that and to extend it to the people that you at least expect them to want to extend it to, their captors, their oppressors. So with the exilic community's context and calling in mind, I want to think a little bit together this morning about um, what this passage might say to us about pursuing shalom in our context. I know that you all have been thinking together about what this looks like uh, for you as a body and here in Lancaster City and I think that this text has a lot to say to us about what it looks like to pursue shalom ourselves. And so I want to pull out a couple things that I noticed that we might learn from the exilic community in this text in Jeremiah. The first thing that I notice is that we're called to practice and pursue shalom right where we are. God tells the exiles through Jeremiah, stay put. Do some things that represent wholeness and well-being. So instead of seeing our current situation as something to either take advantage of uh, if it's good or escape from, if it's bad, which I fall into that trap sometimes, uh, we're called to see our current situation as an opportunity to extend uh, this shalom to the people that we encounter. And we have that opportunity all the time. As we think about practicing shalom right where we are, there are a couple of differences that it's important, I think, to name between ourselves and the exilic community. Um, for most of us, the, the, the most important difference, I think, is that most of us uh, wield some kind of societal power, right? We have more power than the exilic community did, probably. We feel like we're at least in some kind of control of our own destiny. The exiles in Babylon, on the other hand, were uh, oppressed, they were taken away from their space uh, forcefully, and they were probably completely disoriented. Now, the caution for us as we think about what it means to pursue shalom right where we are as people with power is that we don't let that power blind us to the fact that shalom, the shalom that God is calling us to in this text is actually for all people. I think sometimes uh, when we think about peace, our first uh, instinct is to consider ourselves at peace when we have the maximum amount of comfort and security. When I feel comfortable and secure, that's when I feel most at peace. But that's actually not what God is calling the community to, the exiled community to here. Uh, This community probably was at an all-time low when it comes to comfort and peace, and yet their calling from God was to still pursue shalom. As Don mentioned, um, part of the reason I'm here this morning is to share a little bit about the Shalom Project Uh, The Shalom Project is a new organization in Lancaster that was started with this core motivation of of pursuing Shalom uh, right where we are, in this place in Lancaster. So through the Shalom Project, college graduates are invited to live together in community in Lancaster uh, for a year, working with local organizations and using their gifts and skills creatively uh, on behalf of the wholeness and peace of the people in this place. We wanted to create a space... Uh, where participants can can do that sort of outward work, extending shalom, while also working on their own formation, personally, spiritually, professionally. So it's about this inner and outer experience of shalom. And so as director of the Shalom Project, I'm excited about the ways that I think through this experience, through this organization, uh, we can pursue this calling in Jeremiah 29 to practice shalom right where we are. Um, So like Don said, uh, if you're interested in learning a bit more, we'll have some time for conversation during Sunday School. And Lenore Kaufman, who's a participant this year, is here with me so she can share some of her story. So we're called to uh, practice shalom right where we are. The second thing that I see in this text um, that speaks to us about what it means to pursue shalom is that the work of shalom can actually be fairly ordinary. It can be fairly attainable. The exiles look at the things that they're called to do. They're called to build homes and plant gardens, to to have families, to get married, to multiply, to be patient, to pray, to seek God. These are fairly ordinary things that most of us do uh, in our day-to-day lives. So subversive shalom doesn't require that we change the world in one fell swoop. It just asks that we do the things that are uh, within reach, the things to which we are called, that represent our commitment to the wholeness and peace of the people around us. I think we see this even in the life of Jesus. You know, the the miracles of Jesus are anything but mundane and ordinary. But it's really interesting to look at the situations in which those miracles occur. On a hillside where Jesus is teaching. Walking from one place to another. Fishing at sea. At a wedding. It's these ordinary life circumstances where Jesus is present that miracles emerge and I think that if we 're called to do mission in the way of Jesus, which I think that we are, uh, then ordinary life seems like a pretty good place to start in April. I had the chance uh, to travel to Baltimore with some friends from the Sunnyside community uh, to hear Tawakal Carmen speak uh, Carmen is a uh, Yemenese woman. She's a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, for her work on human rights and especially women's rights in Yemen. She's been a big part of the Arab Spring movement there. Um, Carmen uh, has worked incredibly courageously. She's been, um, there have been several assassination attempts on her, and yet she continues to do her work. So Carmen spoke for a while, shared some of her story, and then she had a time of Q&A afterwards. And one person got up and, and asked, you know, um, she said, why, why now? Why did the Arab Spring take root and flourish now? And, you know, Tawakal Carmen could have analyzed the, the socio-historical sweep that got us to this point in time. She could have talked about the role of social media, and she actually did talk about those things. But the first thing she said in answer to this question, why now, was because we are here. She said, because we are here. So, in other words, she's saying this peaceful movement, this protest against violence and oppression, this pursuit of shalom took root here and now because ordinary people got down to work. They felt called and they got down to work. Doing things that were were within reach, not that were without risk, but things that were within reach. So the fact that the work of Shalom can actually be fairly ordinary is not an excuse for complacency. It's not an excuse to say, well, if Nathan's saying the work of Shalom is ordinary, then I'll just kind of go about my life and not worry too much about it because in doing that I'm actually extending Shalom. I think there's a difference between the work of Shalom being simple and ordinary and the work of Shalom being risky and uncomfortable. So that... That brings me to my third thing that I notice in this text. The work of Shalom can be... uh, So we're called to do the work of Shalom right where we are. We're called to engage it in ordinary ways that are within reach for us. And yet the work of Shalom is not always easy or fun or natural. Simple, maybe, but not easy. And I think there's a difference. The Shalom of the exilic community is bottom-up. God calls these people who are minority, who are disoriented, who are in exile, to pursue shalom, and God calls them to pursue it on the behalf of the people that uh, everyone least expects, their oppressors, the Babylonians, the people in power. I think if that was the calling for me, it would not feel easy or fun or natural. So for those of us with privilege, like we talked about earlier, this calling uh, this work of shalom calls us to move into spaces of discomfort and risk, not unlike your Monday night community meals. It calls us to find ways to, to actually become marginalized ourselves so that in, in building relationships with people on the margins, uh, we are able to extend shalom in those spaces. And it also calls us to open ourselves to being transformed by those relationships. So it's this give and take Where, on behalf of God, we are extending shalom in marginal spaces, but we're also receiving shalom from people on the margins. So for some of us, this might mean that we actually physically relocate to a marginalized neighborhood. For others of us, it might mean that we build these marginal spaces into our day-to-day lives. Maybe we uh, take the bus instead of driving our own car somewhere. Or maybe we take our kids to the park instead of playing in our own backyard. Or maybe we go hang out at the library instead of the coffee shop. Now as we get down to this work of Shalom that's not always easy or fun or natural, there will be voices telling us that maybe it's not worth the effort or maybe that we should do something that's a little bit more comfortable or that, that pushes us a little bit less. We hear these voices in this passage in Jeremiah 29. They're the false prophets. Earlier in Jeremiah, we see that these false prophets were telling the people in exile not to worry too much, that their exile would be uh, short and maybe not all that uncomfortable, and they can just kind of uh, exist for a while, and they'll get out of it pretty soon. But God has a different word for the community. God says, do not listen to these false prophets. God says, I have not sent them. They're not speaking my words. And in fact, God says through Jeremiah, actually, you guys are going to be here for at least a generation, 70 years. And it's, it's up for debate whether that's a literal 70 years or whether it just means a long time. But either way, God is telling the community, actually, I've put you here for quite a while so that you can get down to this work, so that you can really dig in and make it worth your while. God promises them that they will be in Babylon long enough to make this work worth the effort. So, we're called to practice and pursue shalom right where we are. We're called to do it in our day to day ordinary lives. And we're called to uh, move out of spaces of comfort so that we can both experience and extend shalom. Lest all of this feel overwhelming, there's consolation. In the end of this passage, and I love the way that this this uh, set of verses ends. God promises to be present and enact restoration in and through us when we do this work of shalom. God promises the exiles that they will be restored to the land that they were taken from; that they won't wither away in Babylon. God says that when the He says to the exiles, when you when you pray to me and genuinely seek me, you will find me. I think this is maybe part of what it means for our shalom to be connected to the shalom of this place. That God says, when you pursue shalom on behalf of others, you will experience it internally through my spirit, through God's spirit. So God takes the long view in this passage. God tells the exiles to settle in for at least a generation. Do we have the faith and courage to do the work of shalom without the promise that we will see immediate results? Do we trust that even when we can't see movement happening, that God is still present and is doing transforming work in and through us? Are we patient enough to join in the slow work of God, as Todd talked about it last week? Those of us who are working with the Shalom Project are uh, trying to trust this promise. We trust that through our efforts... Through this organization, transformation of both the community and the participants will happen, but we also fully realize that we don't know what what, what that transformation will look like, how that will take place. Perhaps you're trusting that promise in other ways for yourself. So the invitation to all of us is to fully engage in this work of Shalom committing ourselves to extending wholeness and peace wherever we find ourselves, getting down to the mundane, attainable, risky, uncomfortable, transformative process of pursuing shalom. And when we practice this subversive shalom, we can trust that God's promise of presence and peace and hope to the exiles extends to us. And I believe that that is the good news of Jeremiah 29. May it be so for us.